Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. I'm Kate Urquhart from Minneapolis. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. When Dan Deacon was 20, he heard a song that changed the way he made music forever. You know, I'd never heard anything like it before. It'd be like seeing a new color, which I guess is music's like biggest asset is that you can hear new sounds. I'll probably never see a new color. I'll probably never experience like a new crazy taste, but I'll hear new sounds constantly. It's Bullseye. This week, Dan Deacon on the song that changed his life. Chris Lilly turns a childhood of dressing up in his mom's clothes into a successful television career. His new show is Angry Boys. And I talk to the actors from the not-boring-at-all costume drama Downton Abbey. Jeez Louise, I love Downton Abbey. Look, it's all the good stuff in popular culture, right here on Bullseye. Let's go! For what's good this week, we go first to our pals at the AV Club in Chicago. We've got Josh Modell and Tasha Robinson here with some picks. Josh, uh, what do you got for us this week? I've got the DVD release of Steven Soderbergh's latest movie, Contagion. Uh, it was kind of pitched to audiences as an outbreak-style thriller, uh, when in fact it's much, much scarier than that. It's a clinical look at what might happen uh, if a terrible disease got loose in the world. Here's a clip from the movie. It's Kate Winslet and Lawrence Fishburne. As of last night, there were five deaths and 32 cases. There's a cluster in an elementary school. Okay, that's the kind of thing you're going to have to be prepared for. It's going to be all over the news big time. What's your single overriding communications objective? We're isolating the sick and quarantining those who we believe were exposed. Okay, good. As of this moment, you and I are attached at the cell phone. If you need resources, call me. If you get into a political dogfight, call me. If you find yourself wide awake, staring at the walls at 3 a.m., wondering why you took the job... This is out right now on DVD and Blu-ray. Soderbergh seems to be really great at, at, at making something really interesting out of what would otherwise be a, a, a normal genre movie. Yeah, because I think he basically completely ignores every convention. You know, in this movie, there is no main character. There are you know six or seven A-list actors who kind of all have their own stories. Very few of them interact with each other. The only through line is that they're all they're sharing the same experience that the entire world is sharing. Tasha Robinson, what have you got for us this week? I've got the latest book by Daniel Handler, who much younger readers will know as Lemony Snicket. But Daniel Handler, in addition to writing uh, the series of Unfortunate Events books, which he's best known for under that name, also writes books for adults. Um, this is called Why We Broke Up, and it is, in fact, a novel about why we broke up. Myra Kalman does the illustrations in this book. She was on our show one time when she did an illustrated version of the Elements of Style. She does these beautiful watercolors. What's the relationship between the pictures and the words? Well, the pictures, each chapter begins with a picture of an item, and the story takes the form of a lengthy letter to the person that we broke up with explaining why we broke up. Each item is part of the story of the relationship, sort of from the beginning to, to the end. Is it funny at all? It's funny in a bitter sort of way. The voice, the character whose voice you're hearing is uh, this, this quirky young girl who is fascinated by old movies and 
sort of obscure and strange items. And shes it's very funny to hear her. It's very funny to hear her sort of wry take on how the two of them relate to each other, given that uh, the, the boyfriend is a jock. It's not a humor book by any means, not in the way his, uh, his other books kind of tend to be. Well, they all sort of have that sort of bittersweet humor to them, I suppose. This week's picks from the AV Club. Josh Modell suggests that you check out the movie Contagion, directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's out now on DVD and Blu-ray. And Tasha Robinson suggests the novel Why We Broke Up by Daniel Handler. You can find the AV Club online at avclub.com. Thanks, Josh and Tasha. Thank Thank you. you. Bullseye. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So let's start by getting this out of the way. Downton Abbey is an Edwardian costume drama. And it's not just an Edwardian costume drama. It's an Edwardian costume drama whose central drama revolves around peerage rules. There are a lot of smoldering looks and corsets and gossiping servants And there's even a dowager countess. I'm not entirely sure even what a dowager countess is. But whether or not you're the kind of person who has a poster of Mr. Darcy on their wall or a copy of the novelization of Upstairs, Downstairs, it's kind of an amazing show. I know that I'm not that guy who loves costume dramas, and I'm basically in love with Downton Abbey. It's a huge hit on ITV in Britain, and the second series premieres this week on Masterpiece on PBS here in the United States. Joining me from WNYC in New York are Hugh Bonneville, who plays the Earl of Grantham, the master of the titular Downton Abbey. Really, Mama, you know as well as I do that Cora's fortune is not Cora's fortune anymore, thanks to Papa, it is now part of the estate. And the estate is entailed to my heir. That is it. That is all of it. Dan Stevens, who plays Matthew Crawley, a distant cousin who in series one learned he was the unlikely heir to the estate. We do not need a butler or a valet if it comes to that. We've always managed perfectly well with a cook and a maid, and they cannot expect us what to What they expect, alter our Matthew, own. is that we won't know how to behave. So if you don't mind, I would rather not confirm their expectations. I have to be myself, Mother. And Joanne Froggett, who plays Anna Smith, the head housemaid, whose romance with the valet, Mr. Bates, set many hearts aflutter in the first series, including, I have to admit, mine. Will we have to leave Downton? Not until we want him. I've spoken to his lordship, and he will find a cottage for us near the house. You told him you want to marry me? I did. Before you spoke to me? You don't mind, do you? Of course I mind. In fact... I'd give you a smack if I didn't want to kiss you so much. I could burst. Go! <laughs> Hugh, Dan, Joanne, welcome to Bullseye. Hi there. Hi. Hi. So I guess I, I, I'm going to start with you, you Hugh, um, because I, I think I can't continue on in this interview without having someone I- explain this um, complicated series of machinations that powered the first series of this show. And I kind of feel like since you're the boss on the show, you're the boss of explaining that. So in a nutshell, uh, the, the, the title of the Earl of Grantham goes to the closest uh, living uh, eldest male heir. That heir was uh, killed on the Titanic, and so suddenly the doors are open to find the next male heir. And in fact, it turned out to be a third cousin, uh, who none of us knew, uh, who was a lawyer in Manchester. Uh, so he comes to join the estate, and 
at the same time, there is ructions within the family because my wife, Cora, an American, um, married into the family because she had a lot of cash. And so there's argument about trying to extract the cash from the estate so that this strange third cousin who we've never met doesn't get his hands on it. Unfortunately, that would mean the collapse of the entire estate. So it's a very, very complex situation. But that's where series one ended with Matthew now being in the bosom of the family. But unfortunately, there are far bigger things to worry about, which is the onset of World War I. So I have to ask you guys this pretty straight, which is, you know, all of you are um, uh, veteran actors. And um, I wonder if when you got the when you got a a synopsis from your agent or you got some sides from your agent or, or whatever you got or just a telephone call from your manager, you thought, oh, uh, that sounds super boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, in England, we do we tend to do things slightly. We're far, we're far less paranoid, I think, about uh, allowing actors to see scripts. I know in in uh, certain Hollywood projects and so on, you're, you're allowed to see one sentence of what might be your part. Hugh, but, I just assumed that you were going to say, "Well, in England, we're much more boring." <laughs> <laughs> well, we are more boring. You know, that is true. That's that's a given. Um, but no, we were allowed to allowed to read the script. So I'll hand over to the others to just describe what they thought of it. Yeah, well, when I sat down to read the first episode when it was sent to me before my audition, um, I think I read, like, two pages or something, and I was hooked. I just was desperate to know what happened to these characters, and I just couldn't put the script down. So I think when you when you read a script like that, um, you just know it's great. You know, it's a great story, and, and that's the basis for, for any, any good production, you know, whether it be theatre, film, or TV. Yeah, it was really surprising when we... When it came through, I think we make a lot of costume drama in England. It's one of our biggest exports after, I don't know, tins of tea from Harrods and cushions <laughs> with the Union Jack on. And um, so it, I was really surprised when, when reading Downton that it was a costume drama with a bit of a modern twist in a way. It's not an adaptation of anything. It's it's quite refreshing and new. It's got a lot of characters in it. And it's really, really engaging storytelling. And also the character of Matthew appealed to me and um, got me hooked. Dan, maybe you can start by telling me a little bit about what it was about the character of Matthew, who is, um, who is essentially he's an he's an interloper here. He is not part of this cozy world. He's sort of a he, he's sort of a visitor from modernity, um, being a you know city lawyer who only just sort of realizes that he uh, has this connection to the peerage. Um, what was it that appealed to you about that character? Well, I suppose what appealed was also what what made him difficult to play in a way, and what intrigued me was that it, you know, with everybody else in in Downton, you you see where they fit into the whole system and what role they play in the estate. And with Matthew, you're not quite sure where he comes from. He is from a different world to them, and so it was up to me to sort of pick my way through the part and 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 learn about you know, where, where his place was and, and what this estate was all about. And Matthew has to sort of learn some lessons and he passes judgment on a few things, but is sort of taught a lesson at the same time. And so um, he explores Downton in the way that, that we do. We come into this world and, and try and figure it out and whether we think certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Hugh, you mentioned that the uh, second series of the show takes place during the beginning of World War One. Um I think it was a very interesting choice, and I wonder if it was part of the attraction for the three of you. That This is a costume drama, but it is a costume drama that is set 
just at the very knife's edge, it, it really is this inflection point, which is very different from something that's set, you know, during in 1780 or something like that. Absolutely, I think that that's a, that's a very it's a crucial point, of, and perhaps one of its attractions why it's worked so well because it is on the cusp of the modern era. It is a, there was a massive shift, obviously, with the First World War, the impact of that, the wiping out of a generation, the uh, the rise of of the role of women in society, in British society, certainly that they were having having been employed in men's jobs throughout the war because the men were away. Why should they relinquish those jobs, that role in society? And so, votes for women were absolutely were key before the but they absolutely you know became paramount after it and the the the, the if you like the long hot summers of uh, the pre-war era and that certainty that confidence that britain certainly had in itself about its role in the world the empire and the structure of a house like downton that absolute confidence of everyone knowing their place that was shattered and it's the world where the telephone is introduced where communication and travel are accelerating and uh, are hints or foreshadowing the world that we live in now in a much more tangible way than perhaps other period dramas are. So there's a sense, I think, that people think they're relaxing into a world of of cosy costume drama, but in fact, no one knows what's going to happen next. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are members of the cast of Downton Abbey, Hugh Bonneville, Joanne Froggett, and Dan Stevens. Hugh, I, I want to ask you a, a little bit about your character, uh, the Earl, and, and his relationship to um, uh, to the peerage and, and the system and this house. Um, his loyalty to his loyalty that you think might be to himself or to his own sort of. Um, affluence or even that of his kids really seems in season one to be to uh, what at least he sees as a higher ideal, which is the preservation of this, um, you know, ephemeral thing, this, this title um, and the house, the physical thing, this house and estate that go with it. And I wonder if, if you can relate to that, to that feeling of loyalty towards something bigger than you, because it's something that seems so admirable. But as I watched it, I wondered if I could. Um, I don't think it's something that our generation can possibly understand unless we happen to be born into that situation. Um, having said that, you know, uh, Lord Carnarvon, whose house, Highclere Castle, we film in, uh, is in exactly that situation. He, his duty since birth has that he will he will one day take over as he has done he would you know he was brought up to know that he would take over this estate and his sole purpose in life is to hand it on to the next generation um i think that's sort of even more true of uh of, of robert i think modern mores and modern sensibilities are different um but to, to run an estate like that it's more than just being you know counting the cash it's actually keeping this machine running and woe betide you if the chippendale furniture is broken on your watch it's been there for several hundred years and it's your duty to hand it on to the next generation so it's that sense of absolute dogged uh, honor and duty to the name of the family that is paramount for robert it's not something i you know i can possibly comprehend coming from from the world i do that we do 
in, in, in the 20th century. But there are, you know, a handful of houses that are still run like that, uh, handed down from generation to generation to the eldest son or in these days eldest daughter. Um, and uh, it's a huge responsibility. I sure as hell wouldn't like to have the heating bills that Lord Carnarvon has to pay for Highclere Castle. Um, <laughs> and indeed, you know, in the world of Downton, there's a far bigger estate. There's probably up to 200 servants on the estate. And that's not just the gardens and the house. It's actually the village and you know, the, the, the lands around. Um, and it's you know if any if any element of that of that machinery the cogs that make Downton Abbey exist if any of those freeze up um, or, or rust in some way he's got to fix it else the machine breaks down so that's why I think uh, in, in Julian Fellows's world of Downton Abbey anyway there's a sort of um, benign desire to make sure that everyone's okay because else his world will collapse. Joanne, uh, your character on Downton Abbey is like the uh, just the paragon of kindness and virtue. Can you relate to her sort of relative comfort with her place in this system? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, obviously for a, a, a female in that day and age, life was very, very different than you know than a, the, the modern woman and how we live now. So. Um, but also for a working class girl um, to be a servant and to be in service was actually, a, a, you know, a, a real, a real asset. And it was a, um, you know, it was it was a job to be proud of. It was a profession to be proud of. So, and especially for somebody like Anna, who's actually quite young and she's got quite a high, um, quite a high place in in the house because um, she's the head housemaid and she also is ladies' maid to the girls as well. Um, so she's done very, very well um, at her career, and she's very content with that. She's she is ambitious, but she's a hard worker, and um, she just knows her world and uh, things like travelling very, you know, travelling to different countries and um, and doing you know things things like that just just weren't part of that world. So I don't I think to somebody like Anna, it probably never occurred to her that she's missing anything because this is all she knows, and that she, she's she's doing very well for herself. Dan and Hugh, you guys both did uh, a fair amount of comic acting. Uh, Dan, you were a member of the Footlights. Uh, Hugh, you you spent um, a fair amount of your thirties playing sweet goofuses. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I wonder how the sort of uh, gravitas that uh you have to bring to your role hugh and the um gosh i think uh maybe dashingness that you have to bring <laughs> uh to your role dan way way upon you and and um uh, how you approach that challenge um not that it's a big challenge you're very handsome and gravitas filled <laughs> man well, thank you. Uh, I think, as Joe says, you know, as an actor, you look to mix it up a little bit and, and look to try different things. I did start out in comedy, I suppose, but actually since I've been working professionally, I've done quite a lot of quite sort of dramatic costume dramas. I haven't done... Um, I haven't had the opportunity that Hughes had to play the goofuses, which <laughs> I look forward to fulfilling in my 30s. But, um, yeah, it, it's um, it's been an interesting journey. Certainly in Series 2, Matthew gets um, his fair share of grim storyline um so maybe we'll have a few more laughs in the future i suppose for my part i'm 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 very i'm very lucky that uh, <clears throat> i i've 
been cast in those roles as you describe. Uh, though that's a word I haven't actually put down on my on my uh, resume, but I will. Um, and uh, no, I, there's a series I do at the moment called 2012, which is all about uh, trying to organise the Olympics, which allows me to flex my comedic muscles when I'm not uh, putting on the tweed of Downton Abbey. So um, I'm very blessed to be able to duck and dive a bit between different genres, but uh, I'm very happy uh, whenever we come back to Downton. After we come back from a break, I will badger the cast of the very classy costume drama Downton Abbey about their outfits. Plus, Dan Deacon and Chris Lilly. I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On. Presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. If you already missed the sound of Young America, don't worry. In honor of the launch of Bullseye, we've got a free torrent at MaximumFun.org of our entire recorded archive of The Sound of Young America. 15 gigabytes of audio and video, all absolutely free. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of audio infotainment, all free to download and distribute. Find it in your favorite torrent tracker or online at MaximumFun.org. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us at twitter.com slash bullseye. Hello there. My name's Graham Clark. And I'm Dave Shumka. And together we host a podcast called Stop Podcasting Yourself. This is a file that you download from the internet and then you listen to it in your pod. What's that about, you ask? Well, who are you to ask? Who do you think you are? Yeah, get lost, bozo. (laughs) We're a couple of stand-up comedians in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and every week we bring a guest on the show. Sometimes they're Canadian, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're a ghost. It's like you're sitting in on a friendly uh, afternoon chat. Plus, we're Canadian, so uh, you get a tax break. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes or online at MaximumFun.org. Huh? Ooh, spell. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are members of the cast of Downton Abbey, Hugh Bonneville, Joanne Froggett, and Dan Stevens. In this clip from the show, Dan's character, Matthew, is in the trenches of World War I, and he gets a note granting him leave to return to Downton Abbey. When did this arrive? So, uh, good news. We've been relieved today by the Devons. The men can finally get some rest. I've got a few days' leave coming to me. What do you do with them, sir? Uh, London first. Remind myself what real food tastes like. Then north for a couple of days, I suppose. Naturally, there's a girl. I want to see while I'm there. So I should hope, sir. Strange, isn't it? Think of our old lives just going on as before. While we're here, in this. Well, that's strange. I think of my life at Downton. It seems like another world. Series two of the show takes place at the dawn of World War One, um, And Dan, your character is... 
um, is in service uh, partly on the front lines uh, during the series. I wonder how you prepared yourself for a world that is very, very, very different than the, you know, um, uh, housemaids and white tails world of the first series. Yeah, it was a bit of a shock um, when we started filming the second series. I was suddenly, yes, not in white tie around a dinner table, but completely covered in mud in a field somewhere in England um, carrying a dead guy on my shoulders um, so physically you know, it was very demanding and very different um, it was challenging also a huge amount of fun there were you know, real explosions going off all over our head and that was quite amazing um, I suppose it's important to point out that the, you know, the show still remains very much about Downton Abbey and, and so uh, Matthew's storyline as well as being at the front is really about coming home and, and what it's like to come home and um, I suppose part of the preparation I did was to talk to some soldiers, um, you know, real-life soldiers, some veterans and some uh, younger modern-day soldiers about um, who were from a similar sort of class, I guess, um, and talk to them about what, what it's like to come back from a war zone and try and fit in in a sort of white-tie party situation, which still occasionally happens. I talked to one young soldier who'd been serving in Afghanistan who had had to come back and go to a 21st birthday party uh, the following week in white tie at a big country house and um, just how mad and strange that was for him. Um, so, that you know, there's a little bit of that that I, I tried to work in, I suppose. Um, it's a strange thing to get your head around, though. Um, can I ask you guys a, a, a little bit about outfits? Yeah. So I'm kind of an outfit enthusiast, I have to admit. And um, what are you what are you, what are you wearing? <laughs> I am I am actually are you you say that as 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 a joke. We are separated by a few thousand miles and a telephone line uh, right now. But I am actually wearing a I am wearing a pretty serious outfit right now. Um, Is it but a Christmas outfit. It's a well. Actually, you know, I it wouldn't be too far if if it were a suit and not an odd jacket. It would be not too far uh, out of line for. Uh, uh, for a, a hunting trip or a ramble on uh, Downton Abbey. Nice. Are you in tweed? Uh, I am not in tweed, but I am wearing a uh, Shetland Fair Isle sweater vest. Very Perfect. nice. Um, Perfect. And uh, a corduroy sport coat with a throat. Wow, latch, it must so. be it must be cold over there. Joanne's wearing a bikini, and Dan and I are in <laughs> Bermuda shorts. <laughs> Um, they're, they're Downton Abbey official issue, but I'm sure I'd like to add. Uh, <laughs> uh, Joanne, I, I think I'll I, I think I'll start with you. So um, you're one of uh, many beautiful women on this program. Oh, um, thank you. But <laughs> several of the other beautiful women on this show uh, get to wear outrageous. Uh, complicated dresses they get to look slightly more beautiful and <laughs> um and you get to wear uh uh you know head made outfits and i wonder yeah. if you i wonder if you ever like check out one of those like crazy dresses and just think like one time maybe we could have uh you know, it's opposite day at Downton Abbey and the servants are wearing their crazy outfits. Well, I have, I have suggested to Julian on numerous occasions that he write a scene where Lady Mary and, uh, just gives Anna loads of her clothes. So Anna is just trying on all Lady's Mary, Lady Mary's dresses and things like that. But for some reason, he hasn't, he hasn't gone for it yet. And yeah. I don't know why. Maybe next series. <laughs> Hugh and Dan, part of the social protocol of uh, 
uh, a, an upper class home in 1915 was this ridiculous series of clothes to the point where you know you have a, a valet or valet whose job it is to make sure that you're wearing the right clothes at the right time and basically put them on you. Um, and I wonder if there's some relationship between the clothes that you put on and, uh, you know, the choices that you make as an actor or the way that you feel uh, on, on the set. I think there definitely is. I think uh, the girls would certainly say that, you know, the corsets make you sit and stand straighter. But uh, Hugh and I are very often in these horribly stiff shirts uh, with very, very stiff collars that sort of cut into your neck. And so you do just naturally find yourself standing uh, a little more upright and a little more correct and um, I'm sure that has a bearing on how, how we act and behave in the show. And there's a certain amount of uniformity to it. Uh, the girls uh, it, well, the girls of the upstairs part of the story uh, probably got changed three or four times a day, mainly because they hadn't got much else to do um, <laughs> and there's a certain uniformity about the dress code for dinner, you know, you will, you will always dress for dinner and so the, for the men that's a question of wearing white tie and tails but I think I'm going to I'm going to let you into a little secret here, a little bit of a season two spoiler. The tuxedo makes an appearance in season two. It's the new, a newfangled invention, which we agree that I will only wear on very, very uh, in, informal occasions. It's the equivalent of wearing a sort of dressing gown, really, um, in, in terms of its informality. And it's, 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 of course, looked down upon by certain members of the family. But so, no, I mean, there's, you know, in, this, in the way that I'm mean, just talking about fashion for a moment, obviously, the, the women's you know, fashion progresses much more visibly, I suppose, um, from, from pre-war to, to through season two to the other side of the war in 19, we finished actually in 1920 beginning very beginning of 1920 but the men's uh, the men's progress in fashion is glacially slow <laughs> <laughs> it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guests are members of the cast of downton abbey hugh bonneville joanne froggett and dan stevens there's something interesting that i think you guys touched at a little bit which is the relationship between uh the horror of this war that's going on and the rules of the class that are determining all of what happens in these social interactions and this general sense of reserve where so little can be said explicitly except in secret. Yeah, I think, well, that's um, also, you know, often what you're saying in a scene is is not what you're actually saying. Um, and as an actor as well, that makes it more interesting to play because, you know, I, I may be talking to Mr Bates about polishing buttons, but actually we're kind of saying, I, you know, I think I'm falling in love with you. So as an actor, that's that's interesting because you, you have to find the nuances yourself and... Um, and and find the highs and lows in the scene, and it's, um, it's fun to do that. Yeah, this is one of the great things to read as an actor because the, the definition of subtext is, isn't there and you have to find it, and um, we have great fun, as Joe says, you know, especially if you, you with your opposite number. For me, it's Michelle as Lady Mary, but, you know, uh, Brendan or wh- whoever it may be, uh, finding those, those hidden meanings and storylines um, and that sort of weave right the way through both series, I think. As an American, right, so my my birthright is to think the peerage system that it's a horrific indignity to freedom or whatever, right? <laughs> I, yeah. And I get really complicated feelings when in watching the show, I find my feelings becoming more complicated than that. 
Well, that's good. I think that's that's the mark of a good, uh, engaging story in a way that it challenges your ideas and uh, of how you know you feel things should be. Um, I think you know there is still um, a similar structure in place in society today. It's just that you know the in place of you know your lords and peers or, or whatever you have the rich and the wealthy and you know it is possible to become one of those people without you know being born into it and i suppose in in a, in in an american sense that is freedom um but those the people that end up in those positions uh hold on to them i think uh in a way that's perhaps not as beneficial to society at large and i think there is a greater divide now uh, than there perhaps ever was between the haves and the have-nots. I should explain that I am obscenely rich, like just off <laughs> the charts rich. How many how many servants do you keep on your estate? Oh well, I <laughs> see. That's the thing. I I don't call them servants. I just call them uh, service employees. <laughs> I have one last question for you guys, um, Joanne. Your character Anna uh, is engaged in the, the world's most chaste love affair uh, <laughs> with a character named Mr. Bates, um, who is a valet and has a limp and is very <laughs> honorable. Um, I, I just have to assume that you're in love with him. I know I'm in love with him. Uh, Hugh, Dan, are you guys in love with him? Oh, completely. Yeah. 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 Everyone's in love with him. Everyone's in love with Mr. Bates. Jeez Louise. I'm straight. I would probably make out with him if it came down to it. <laughs> like, as a heterosexual man, I would probably make out with Mr. Bates. Well, I will let him know. Okay. <laughs> well, Hugh, Dan, Joanne, thank you so much uh, for joining me on Bullseye. Thank Thanks you so much, much for having, having us. It's been a pleasure. Hugh Bonneville, Dan Stevens, and Joanne Froggett are three of the many stars of the just great Downton Abbey, the second season of which premieres this week on PBS's Masterpiece. You can watch the first series in full at pbs.org. It's also on DVD and various online streaming services. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Baltimore's Dan Deacon makes and performs music on his computer. It's outrageous, uh, a little bit silly, and it's brought to life by the intense audience participation at his shows. Back when Deacon was 20, he was studying composition in school, and he had a problem. None of his fellow students could perform the complicated pieces he was writing on his computer. But then he was inspired. He heard the compositions of Conlon Nancaro, an American who spent most of his life in Mexico crafting pieces that could only be played by a player piano. Conlon Nancaro's Canon X is the song that changed Dan Deacon's life. You know, I'd never heard anything like it before. It'd be like seeing a new color, which I guess is music's like biggest asset, is that you can hear new sounds. I'll probably never see a new color. I'll probably never experience like a new crazy taste, but I'll hear new sounds constantly. And Canon X is definitely the song that just like just melted my brain. You know, it's an old player piano, and you can obviously tell a player piano from a real piano because it's very clunky and there's not much dynamic movement, or if, or if any dynamic movement. Thousands of fingers. It's playing at such a rate that you can tell that no human is doing it, but you know it's an acoustic instrument. It does. It's not electronic, but it doesn't sound human. It's mechanical. 
most experimental music that I was hearing from that time were like arrhythmic. There was no pulse or rhythm to it. And I really loved rhythm and, you know, growing up listening to like, you know, classic rock and pop and stuff, you you like that sort of pulse. And while Canx doesn't have a pulse, it still obviously has like a clear rhythm. And I'm into conceptual art and conceptual music, but it's especially rewarding when it sounds awesome as hell. After I heard the piece, I got really inspired by his story. I just kept thinking, like, how did his brain come to make this? How is this sort of like, this is what I made today. Check it out, guys. Want to hear this? Here it is. Canon X. Here you go. He's tired of being frustrated by having to write music that would fit within the confines of a player's abilities. So he wrote almost exclusively for a player piano for decades. It sort of justified in my head that I could be making music that even if it was unplayable, it, it, should, it was still valid to exist. It didn't need to be performed by humans. The music can exist exclusively on the computer as long as I can find a way to present it appropriately. It sounded like something I've always wanted to hear. Like, did you ever see Dune? And where he like, first sees like, the Fremen girl from his dream? Like, this song is the Fremen girl from my dream. Dan Deacon on the song that changed his life, Canon X, composed by Conlon and Caro. Dan Deacon's Twitter handle is at eBay Netflix. We've got Chris Lilly from the new HBO show Angry Boys after a break. I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. You can find our awesome new Bullseye logo on T-shirts in three colors at MaxFunStore.com. Order yours now. That's MaxFunStore.com. You can follow Bullseye on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and click like. Hi, I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Griffin McElroy. We're three brothers. It's not a coincidence. We have a show. It's called My Brother, My Brother Me. It's an advice show for the modern era. Uh, sometimes we also take questions from the Yahoo Answer Service. Hey, guys, how many push-ups does it take to look like a werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fine question, Griffin. We'll answer that one and so much more, including questions from readers about love and navigating the waters of society. Subscribe on iTunes or get it online at MaximumFun.org. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Chris Lilly. He's one of Australia's most popular comedy writers and actors. His new show, Angry Boys, is airing now Sunday nights on HBO. It's a faux documentary looking at a wide breadth of young men in various states of adolescent torment, some of them teenagers, some of them grown adults. Here's a clip from the show. Come here a bit more. If you move your head at any time, you're a <laughs> No, keep your Head straight, ready? Steve's been such a dickhead lately. Like, he gets pissed off at me, no matter what I do. Daniel, don't spit on your brother. <laughs> I'm not spitting on him, it's spit strings. I'm not actually touching him. It's just a game. And sometimes, like, my brothers are in pain. It doesn't mean that they're not enjoying themselves. See, that's what happens, because you moved your head, man. So what you can't see in that clip, because... Obviously, this is a radio show, and you can't see anything. Is that Chris is playing a couple of the boys 
in that scene. And that's always been one of the hallmarks of his work, including Summer Heights High, which ran a couple of years ago on HBO. He's never just a single protagonist. He's always a broad range of characters. I asked Chris Lilly when he got started doing characters. It turns out it was pretty young. I do remember being, there was an American family that moved in across the road, and I was so excited because America was just this amazing faraway land. And so I met these two young boys. I was like about eight myself, and they were about five or something. And I said, I said to them that I had an American cousin who was staying with us. Then I went back into the house and I dressed up as an American girl with my, one of my mum's <laughs> wigs that she had, dressed up in some of my mum's clothes, walked across the road, put on my best American accent, which sounded like some kind of southern sort of like, well, it sounded a bit like Tootsie or something, and um, <laughs> pretended to be this, this American cousin to these two kids who completely fell for it. Well, according to my eight-year-old self, they, they believed that I was this that I was this strange woman from across the road. And then I got in trouble for that. My mum got really mad at me. That sounds like, like the greatest triumph ever for an eight-year-old. That's like having your own detective agency and solving a crime or something. Yeah, yeah, I thought I did pretty well. It was, it was one of my best early performances. You were a stand-up in, uh, in your 20s. Was your stand-up character-driven? Well, not not at the start. I started doing just as myself because I thought, well, this is what's expected. You're meant to tell stories and do observations. And and then I started to realize that I wanted to mix it up a bit. So I brought in – I used to do little songs. So I had a little keyboard on stage and I'd sing songs and I brought in little props. And, and then I thought of the idea of just talking about a character and then becoming the character on stage. I want to play a, a clip from Angry Boys. This is you as this teenager named – Nathan and Nathan is lives on a, a farm in rural Australia with his twin brother and his family. And in this clip, he's essentially describing uh, what he does for fun. And, and the visual that goes along with this clip is him and his small group of friends uh, going up and down the main street in town, which can be in its entirety contained within one camera shot yeah (laughs) it's like a block maybe a block and a half um let's listen to this clip from angry boys we're the manies just drive up down the main street yeah there's different types of manies like you can do basic manies which is just driving up and down and checking out what's going on like calling out to chicks or whatever or you can do music manies you just pump some music and that just just full tunes blaring and that yeah, like back in the day, before my, I got my license, we did BMX manies. Just cruise up and down, check out what's going on. Walking manies, that's sometimes fun too. How do you get to know a, a world uh, like Nathan and his brother's world intimately enough to do this kind of portrayal? It comes from all, all different places, like those the boys that live on the farm in Dunt, Daniel and Nathan. I guess I've got two older brothers. Um, we used to spend a lot of time on farms, like maybe there's a little bit of that in there. But then once I started writing the characters, I actually went out to country towns in Australia and spent time with teenagers and picked up little things there. There's this character uh, in the new show Angry Boys called Graham, and I want to play a clip of you as her and she is a um she's a counselor at a juvenile detention facility and um 
here she is. I mean, sort of her, her hallmark is her just wild inappropriateness. Um, and in this clip, she introduces the idea of Graham's gotchas. And, and there's sort of a series of, it's a montage of her playing pranks on these 13-year-old kids in jail. Hi, Trent. We just found out that you're getting an early release. Congratulations. So congratulations. We'll be going home this afternoon. Well done. Let's go pack your bags and get you out of here. Now, where's mum? Mum should be here somewhere. Uh, Trent, I just wanted to say before you go, gotcha. <laughs> Trent, mate, you ain't going You got another nine months in here. We're not letting you out. <laughs> Marcus has just come back from court. Go easy on him. Uh, he's just found out he's going to get the electric chair. Gotcha. <laughs> Here's the thing about that, Chris. I mean, I read a bunch of uh, like Australian interviews with you for the show when it came out in Australia um, a few months ago. And a lot of them focused on the the awful things that that character says and she definitely says just wildly awful inappropriate stuff pretty regularly um but she's a very i found her to be a very very sympathetic character yeah well that was the idea with her was to have have you think something at the beginning of the first episode and then have your your mind completely changed by the end of it and to have this really nasty harsh woman who's saying these horrible racist things and and seemingly yeah really uncaring towards these boys and then it slowly it's revealed as the episode progresses that that she actually really cares about these boys and and that language that she's using is is to kind of get through to them, like she's picked up on that's how they talk to each other, and yeah, and, and also it's a little bit of a, a reference to like she's she's a sixty five year old woman, she's sort of from a different generation, and and the way she refers to indigenous people is is a little inappropriate. Are you attracted to kind of the challenge of uh, of taking someone being awful and and conveying the humanity within that person yeah well with that character that was the goal but i also play really nasty characters where you don't really feel much compassion at all like um in summer heights high i played a teenage schoolgirl jamay who is just this nasty <laughs> you mentioned this character jamay from uh your second show summer summer heights high um which is on on video in the states now and i want to play a, a little clip of her um, this show is, uh, set in a, what we would call a public high school and, uh, she is like a private school girl who is, who is being introduced to the class. She has just come to this public school as a, uh, as an exchange student. And this is her presenting herself to the audience, her fellow students. Thank you, Mr. Cameron, for your welcome. And thank you to the traditional landowners of Summer Heights, the Wurundjeri people. My name is Jamee, J-A apostrophe M-I-E. Weird name, I know, but you'll get used to it. Yes, I come from one of the most expensive private girls' schools in the state, but I'm actually really cool. Please don't be intimidated by me. People always go, private schools create better citizens. 
but I would say they create better quality citizens. Studies have shown that students from private schools are more likely to get into uni and end up making a lot more money, while wife beaters and rapists are nearly all public school educated. Sorry, no offense, but it's true. This character is just super brutal and awful, but I, I don't know. I still, found, I still found myself liking her. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's coming from a place of being really naive, like she's had this really privileged life and she hasn't, doesn't really understand the world, so you kind of forgive her a little bit. And the other thing with Jamea is she just, she's got so much confidence and she's, she's always talking about how hot she is and how attractive and how everyone wants to be her friend. And she's sort of some, somehow you kind of believe it and you fall for it. Like you actually think, oh, she's this really amazing, fun girl and she's, she's, <laughs> um, she's someone that I want to kind of hang out with. It's, it's a strange thing. It's funny that you can even talk about her in the third person um, and, and the idea of almost falling for her when you are basically talking about you falling for yourself. Yeah, that's that weird thing. I, I always do that. Like when I'm cutting the show together, I always talk about the characters as though there's someone else. I don't even think about it. I just think, yeah, so much work goes into making that the the sort of the world of the characters is that that it yeah it does feel like it has its own life and it takes off and it and it is something real. I'm going to play another clip of this uh, youth counselor character named Graham. Uh, this is her in the uh, detention center um, introducing this thing called the Scaring Young Boys program. Yeah, well, every couple of months we do our Scaring Young Boys program. I get uh, a young guy in, a boy who's been uh, getting in trouble at school, maybe mum's at their wit's end. They're, they're on a pathway towards criminal activity. Extra ball and chains for those guys that don't have them. Who needs a ball and chain? Uh, what I like to do is to ham things up a little bit. It's a little role play that we do. We make the prison look a lot scarier and worse than it really is. Once your ball and chains are on, then get familiar with them, have a walk around, guys. I have no trouble getting my guys involved. They get a week of privileges if they do so. Imran, your a lot of my guys, they're big show-offs, so they, they love the opportunity to perform. Be careful, don't strike each other with your balls, please. Guys, doesn't Taylor look good? Doesn't I'm going to use this as an opportunity to get Taylor involved with the other boys. Very handsome in that outfit. He looks great. Hello, young man. Gran and her little dress-up thing. I know that it does look a bit weird on the surface, and at first I was worried that it could have a detrimental effect on the boys. The kids here call me Psycho Sims. So I hear you've been a naughty boy. But there's no doubt that it is a tradition and it does seem to be an effective program. So most of these people that you're working with in these scenes are like just regular 14, 15 year old boys who aren't actors at all. Um, and you as the writer, creator, star have to be at least kind of in charge on the set. And I wonder what the relationship was between you as a real person, you as Graham and these kids who are not really actors and like actually having to control them for show business reasons and also in the scenes. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, with that story, the grand character, um, there was similarities in the way that I had to control the boys is in the way that, that Grant had to as well. And 
we we sort of searched all over the place to find them. They, they were sort of from country towns, and because I wanted to have, I wanted to represent the reality of juvenile prisons in Australia, which is there's a lot of Indigenous kids and Pacific Islander kids. So we had to find them from all over the place, and they sort of a lot of them didn't know each other, but they kind of formed this this connection. And um, there were some really amazing moments where, like within the script, there's a couple of little lines that I need to get, but but. Um, because it's a fake documentary, we sort of expand on those three lines and it ends up being a whole big scene. And there's a scene where Gran ends up leaving the prison and she has to give a big farewell speech. And it turned out that it was the boys' final scene of the whole shoot and they'd formed this connection with me and with each other and and I was giving them this big speech and, and I expanded on a couple of lines in the script and ended up giving them quite a long, lengthy sort of lecture about the rest of their lives and what they should do and... And it had this kind of this reality thing going on, and I could see the boys looking at me, and you'll see it in the show. It's in the ep- episode eleven where um, they're really listening to what I'm saying, and it's sort of it's like Gran is actually an important adult figure in their lives for a moment. It's really strange. People were quite emotional during the shooting of that scene, and it was very unusual. Well, Chris, I sure appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on Bullseye with me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jesse. Chris Lilly's uh, hilarious and and quite touching new show is called Angry Boys. It's airing now Sunday nights on HBO. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Look, I might live in Los Angeles, but I am a Bay Area kid at heart, born and raised in the Yay. And if you're from the Bay and you're a hip-hop fan, you love E-40, a.k.a. 40 Fontarelli, or Charlie Hustle, 40 Water, the politician. It comes with the territory. It's like being a middle-aged Jewish guy from Brooklyn that loves Jackie Robinson. Right quick. Uh, Still got it. Double platinum, I'm trying to go double profit. I'm in my own lane, that independent They back with me, 100,000... E-40's a great rapper, and that's part of why I picked this song to close out our first show. He's funny, and he's charming, and he has a crazy, distinctive, inventive flow. I love that he makes up great words, too. Uh, in this track, at one point, he says that he's feeling gargantic. What I really admire about 40, though, is his ethic. And that's what this song is actually about. I should mention, by the way, that we can't say what this song is called on the radio. Uh, we'll just have to settle for it. To heck with them. The beat on this track is what we in the Bay call a slap. It's a kind of simple drum-bass clap pattern that shakes your whole car when you turn it up. Between the thumps and the cracks of that simple track, 40 has room for a manifesto. This is a self-made man, the owner of his music, the owner of his record label, the owner of his artistic voice. And I have to be honest, I find it inspirational as heck. These funny-ass after commercialized rappers be killing me, but they wouldn't have wished me without Radio BET or MTV. Everybody want to know how I got famous, how I became a celebrity. I did it independently. Didn't nobody sign me, partner. I signed me. 
do we feel to be seen? Is he really from the game? People love me, man. I'm an icon. It's more than just my flame. People bug me, man. Like a python, I squeeze on them, man. When you gonna retire? Probably when I expire. Ooh. You might not see me on the TV channel, but in the hood, I'm still hot like the left sink handle. Monster like Marlon Brando, keep it lit like a candle. Arsenal like Rambo, it's mandatory. I told a torch. I'm an intelligent heathen. Chico State Police, they ban me for no reason. And oh yeah, just to let you suckers know, I ain't rapping too fast, y'all just listening. The point is this. This is a guy 20 plus years into the hip-hop game, and this song is his statement of purpose. One of the things he says is, yeah, maybe he sold drugs for a while like everybody else in the hood did because he had to, but he got his piece of the pie selling records one at a time out of the back of his car, and he's not afraid to tell you that he thinks he's better at rapping now than he ever was. And if you don't get it, as he puts it, he ain't rapping too fast, y'all just listening too slow. And if you disagree, well, that's who the chorus is for. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Colin Walzak. Special thanks to Roman Mars. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. Thanks to Jason Isaac at WNYC in New York for engineering the East Coast side of our interviews this week. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, at Bullseye, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. I'm Jesse Thorne. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. So since this is our first ever show as Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, I just wanted to break in for a second here at the end. We've had an amazing 10 years as The Sound of Young America, starting when I was 19 years old as a college freshman at UC Santa Cruz. And I want to thank every person who's listened to us on the radio and on the internet in all those years, all the folks who've supported us and supported the stations who've carried us. I'm super excited about uh, what I think is going to be a really great new era for us here, and I hope that you're excited too. Listen, if you like Bullseye, keep in touch with us and share us with your friends. We've got a whole podcast network at MaximumFun.org, including forums where you can talk about the show and a group of other great shows. You can catch me on Twitter, at Jesse Thorne, and Bullseye is now on Twitter, at Bullseye. If you're a Facebook user, you can like us there. We're posting cool stuff on Facebook all the time. Go to Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I am even on Tumblr, if you like the Tumblogs, at jessethorne.tumblr.com. Or you can do it the old-fashioned way, by speaking to them in real life like a human being. Or both. Both works, too. But we can't succeed without you, so thank you for all of your support, and thank you for sharing Bullseye with everybody out there who might like it. We'll talk to you next week, and hopefully for years to come, on Bullseye. P.R.I. Public Radio International.